Well, tonight we are in the book of Genesis, so please turn to Genesis chapter 3 with me. Maybe you'll recall at the retreat, I think I mentioned that my favorite verse has become Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's one of my favorite verses because it sets the stage for all of reality. We live in a world where we're probably talking about artificial reality more than actual reality. Tonight we're going to talk about the biblical reality of why things are the way they are. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 and following. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us another opportunity to come before you, to sing praises to your name, to reflect on your kindness and your mercy, for giving us an opportunity to read and to hear your word proclaimed. Pray that you would give us hearts to hear. Pray that you'd remove all distractions and that you would give us insight into your word. Thank you for giving us your word that in this world of seemingly unending confusion, we have your word that gives us complete clarity. Love you, Father, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. So we are living in times of confusion, in a world that's in complete disorder. And speaking to Israel's day, the Lord, through the mouth of his prophet Isaiah, said, the makers of idols go in confusion together. Seemingly every sphere of life is being subject to confusion and disorder. For example, the, uh, the meaning of marriage has been completely redefined. The nuclear family consisting of a mom and dad and children is passe. Divorce is commonplace. Abortion is considered a fundamental human right. Biological sex is rejected. States are actively attempting to pass legislation 
to limit the rights of parents as it pertains to their children. There is confusion regarding the role and purpose of the government. Political candidates have been elevated to hero worship. Many people believe it's the government's responsibility to take care of them. As a result, communism and socialism and totalitarianism are increasing in influence. Church, we could spend hours identifying other spheres of life that have been impacted because of sin. But perhaps one of the greatest spheres of life that is suffering from the cultural confusion of our day is the local church. Numerous Bible-affirming denominations have completely embraced the LGBTQ worldview. Pragmatism has fueled the church growth movement, resulting in churches adopting the attitude of whatever it takes, whatever works to get people in the door, it's permissible. Final authority no longer rests with God's word, but it rests with the individual. The church should only focus on self-help tips and family-friendly entertainment. Teaching sound doctrine and holding members of the congregation uh, accountable are considered unloving. Passages and entire books of the Bible are not even considered historically accurate or relevant. So how do we as a church protect ourselves from this cultural confusion? The answer is sound doctrine. Teaching sound doctrine is the primary responsibility of the local church. Sound doctrine is what keeps the local church distinct from the world. Sound doctrine will allow the light of the gospel to be seen by a world hopelessly lost in a sea of confusion. Sound doctrine sets the boundaries, provides guardrails for the church, so the church can navigate every cultural situation. Paul's primary exhortation to Timothy and Titus for the church that was in danger of cultural confusion was to teach sound doctrine. Titus 2.1 says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And Paul tells Timothy to persist in sound teaching, for by so doing you will save both yourselves and your hearers. But here's the problem. Sadly, many in the church don't want it. They bristle at boundaries because they want complete autonomy to answer to no one but themselves. Listen to this quote from Carl Truman. The cultural distaste for boundaries is also connected to the cultural distaste for truth claims. Such claims necessarily exclude. And in a world where the it-just-feels-right-to-me mentality of the Oprah Winfrey show is more acceptable than the authoritative thus-says-the-Lord of the Old Testament prophets, affinities between the cultural mindset and the nebulous doctrine of much of evangelicalism are clear. In other words, church, in order for the church to be more palatable to the culture, we're setting aside our doctrinal convictions to be more inclusive. But as we set aside our doctrinal convictions, we cease to be the church of Jesus Christ. The only way to combat the cultural confusion that has now pervaded the church is by submitting to sound doctrine. We must be reminded there is nothing new under the sun. Now why is this happening? The root of this cultural confusion can be traced back to the garden. Every issue I stated, and many, many more that we haven't even surfaced, can all be tied back to the fall of Adam and Eve. So tonight, we're going to look at Genesis 3, 1-24, through to ground ourselves in the biblical reality that explains exactly why everything is pulling apart at the seams. We will conclude by touching on how God expects His church to respond to the cultural confusion 
that we are experiencing so that we are better prepared to live as faithful pilgrims in this alien culture. The Genesis account is probably very familiar to us. But the problem with something being familiar is that we can either lose sight of what's being communicated, or worse, we can actually alter the meaning to kind of fit our cultural sensibilities. Let me give you an example. A few months ago, my family and I were able to attend the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, a replica of Noah's Ark. Spectacular. I encourage you all to go. One of my favorite displays in the Ark was a room that had several hundred uh, children's storybooks, uh, toys, nursery decorations that were all falsely depicting Noah's Ark. And there was a sign that had a snake wrapped around it. And the sign said, if I can convince you that the flood was not real, then I can convince you that heaven and hell are not real. In other words, by depicting the flood account as a myth, people begin to lose sight of the reality of what transpired. That God caused the flood to serve as an act of judgment because of sin, as well as an act of salvation by rescuing Noah and his family. The flood account is not a myth. Similarly, the fall of Adam and Eve have also been treated like a myth by many in the academic community, as well as in some religious circles. Now here's what's at stake. A historical Adam and a historical fall are directly connected to a historical Christ. The Apostle Paul states in Romans 5.17, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Without a historical Adam, there is no need for a historical Christ. You'll recall we discussed the line of despair during Sunday school last week. According to the modernist worldview, religious ideas are purely personal values. And these values must be kept separate from reality. They must be kept above the line in the fact-value split. But the fact is, the historical account of Genesis is inseparable from Christianity. The fall of Adam and Eve explained exactly why we are suffering the cultural confusion of our day and why we are not at home in this alien culture. So to better understand Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at four separations that have occurred that we all suffer through because of the fall of Adam and Eve. We will examine each of these separations and then conclude with God's solution to the four separations. So the first separation created by the fall of Adam and Eve is between humanity and God. God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command and ate the fruit, their disobedience resulted in immediate spiritual death, which is separation from God. Though their hearts kept beating, they died. They now live under the condemnation of God. Yes, they now had an expiration date to their physical lives, but spiritually they were buried in the ground. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. It's difficult for us to truly appreciate the separation from God that Adam and Eve experienced. They were able to fellowship with their Creator with absolutely no influence from sin. No fear, no anxiety, no insecurity, no doubt of love. 100% pure relationship with God the Father. 
They're able to walk with God moment by moment. They're able to be they're able to fulfill their life's purpose, free from any residue of sin. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. However, the moment Adam sinned, the chief end, the purpose that he was created for, became lost. He was now separated from God, driven out from His presence, and removed from the fellowship. Look at verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So what does this mean? It means that man's nature is so sinful that God had to cast him out. You can make a case that this one statement is the whole explanation of the history of civilization. Man is thrust out, but is always trying to get back, always trying to repair the separation, but in ways that only lead to death. He knows that in the garden there's a tree of life. Man wants happiness. He wants peace. So they go out searching to make a perfect world for themselves without God, and yet they can never find it. This is the position of humanity today. They're always on the outside. No matter what man attempts to do to achieve this perfection, they cannot get back. And why not? Look at the text. The cherubim and the flaming sword. God put it there to represent the presence and the unapproachability of the Lord God. That means that every time man tries to come back to seek happiness and perfection in life, he immediately is confronted with the everlasting and almighty God. And it is as though you are face to face with God. You can never experience true happiness or perfection because the wrath of God stands against sin. Unless you get past the sword of God's wrath, it is an impossibility to have life. The second separation created by the fall of Adam and Eve is between humanity and other humans. God questions their decision to run and hide in verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This is their chance to come clean, to confess their sin to their creator. Instead, Adam instantly turns on Eve and blames her for his sin. And worse, Adam also blames God. Look at verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Church, rather than taking responsibility, Adam attempts to cover his tracks by suggesting it was God's fault because he was the one who gave him Eve in the first place. According to theologian Anthony Hokema, consciousness of guilt had now brought fear. Fear of what God might do to them as punishment for their sin. But along with fear came evasion of responsibility. And when questioned by God, Eve also evades personal responsibility. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, the possibility of having a perfect relationship with another person ceased. All relationships now suffer from selfishness pride, demanding our own way, unmet expectations, thinking of self before the other person, and on and on it goes. The hostility that immediately existed because of Adam and Eve's sin resulted in Cain murdering his brother in the very next chapter. History is replete with the examples of how horribly cruel humans can be to each other. Think about how many people died under Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. Think about all the men, women, and children that have been killed in war. 
The separation between humans is perhaps the easiest separation for us to understand because of how little regard there is for fellow image bearers. But if we simply look at our own hearts, church, we find ourselves with countless examples of this separation in our own lives. We have a difficult time celebrating when positive things happen to somebody else. We harbor bitterness towards individuals that receive a promotion that we think we deserve. We have a difficult time honoring, showing honor to other people. To mask our own insecurities, we highlight or take advantage of the weaknesses of others. We are quick to judge and slow to extend grace. We hold people to certain standards that we ourselves cannot uphold. The body of Christ is supposed to love each other in such a way that the lost world notices that we are disciples of Jesus. And yet, sadly, too often our sinful hearts show us devouring one another and not showing grace, not showing love, and not showing mercy to where a lost and dying world doesn't like what they see. Third separation created by the fall of Adam and Eve, and one we don't often think about, is between humanity and nature. Look at verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you were dust, and to dust you shall return. So prior to sinning against the holy God, Adam was given dominion over God's creation. Dominion included being over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. But because of the disobedience of Adam, nature now groans under the devastating effects of sin. No longer will the ground produce like it did prior to the fall. Adam is told that work will be a constant struggle until he returns to the ground from which he was made. He will no longer have dominion the same way he did prior to sinning against the holy God. The Apostle Paul describes the situation further, stating, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Church, it's important to note that work itself is not a result of the fall. Work was a gift given to Adam from God. Work was designed to be a means of glorifying God by being a steward of everything that he created. God endowed Adam and Eve with unique gifts and abilities to represent him in the creation that he made. Both the introduction to sin into God's creation, toil and hardship now dominate work life. Work will be a constant struggle for all of us until Christ returns. As a result, we have a tendency of finding our identity in work and not in Christ. We devote more effort and energy towards accomplishing work goals than we do on accomplishing personal family goals that result in sanctification and holiness. We're more afraid of losing our jobs than we are of disobeying the God who rescued us from our sin. We view work primarily as a means to make money for ourselves and satisfy our earthly desires rather than a way to alleviate the needs of others. Martin Luther said the purpose of work and vocation is to love and serve one's neighbor. Now we're tempted to cut our neighbor down if it means we get the promotion. Church, we must recover 
a biblical understanding of work. And in so doing, we will more consistently represent Christ to those we work amongst. The fourth and last separation created by the fall of Adam and Eve is between humanity and self. It's easier for us to understand that humanity is separated from God because of sin, but I think it can be difficult for us to grasp how humans are separated from themselves because of the fall. Look at Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Notice how much of this verse focuses on what happens inside of Adam and Eve. First, they looked at the fruit. They delighted in what they saw. They believed the fruit would give them the ability to be wise. In other words, they're staring at a tree contemplating, which is an internal action, how to increase in wisdom, which is the ability to know good and evil, which requires internal processing of ideas. In the preceding verse, the serpent convinced Eve by reasoning with her by an internal argument that God was keeping something good from them by not allowing them to eat the fruit. And if they simply ate the fruit, they would become like God. Theologian Francis Schaeffer points out, the flow is from the internal to the external. The sin began in the thought world and flowed outward. The sin was therefore committed in that moment that Eve believed Satan instead of God. It's also important to note that God had already told them what was good and what was evil. It was good to eat of every tree. It was evil to eat of one tree. Adam and Eve's sin was not so much in wanting to know what was good and what was evil, but rather they wanted to be the ones to decide instead of listening to what God had already commanded. In other words, they wanted to be the ones to make the laws of the land instead of submitting themselves to the only true lawgiver. In wanting to make the laws of the land, they were attempting to assert their independence from their creator and instead do what was right in their own eyes. Church, this describes the internal battle that rages inside of every person. Every moment is an opportunity to either submit to the true lawgiver or to assert your own independence because you think you know better than the creator and sustainer of the universe. Once Adam and Eve sinned, their emotional and mental state dramatically changed. In Genesis 2 we read, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So prior to sinning against the holy God, they were able to enjoy each other free from sin. There's no embarrassment, no fear, no miscommunication, and no unfulfilled expectations. But the moment they sinned against God, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. Now they immediately experienced true moral guilt, as well as guilty feelings, embarrassment, and shame for the first time. All of these are internal responses to their sin. These internal responses drove them to take physical action by attempting to cover their guilt and shame by their own abilities. Church, if we're honest, we are all guilty of doing the very same thing. When we sin, we try to cover up what we've done. We try by our own abilities to minimize the guilt, embarrassment, or shame that we experience by trying to justify our sin. Officially, verse 8 states, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, 
and I hid myself. Fear is something Adam and Eve never experienced before. For the first time, this powerful emotion drove them to hide from their Creator, from the one that they had only known perfect fellowship with. But now, because their eyes were open to their sin, they were in dread of the one who created them. Their response should have been seeking him out and asking for forgiveness. Instead, their fear caused them to run away from the one who knows them better than they know themselves. Church, listen to how the prophet Jeremiah describes our hearts because of the fall of Adam and Eve. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his way, according to the fruit of his deeds. Because our hearts are deceitful and sick, we are not capable of trusting our feelings. Our emotions betray us. Our desires can be erratic. We can convince ourselves that something is true when it's not. Because of our deceitful and sick heart, we can justify sinful behavior. Moses records in Genesis 6, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Church, our hearts cannot be trusted. Even when God supplies us with a new heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ, our hearts can and will betray us. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul powerfully captures the daily internal struggle of being redeemed by Christ but still living in the body of flesh. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This passage perfectly describes the internal battle that we all face as a result of being separated from ourselves because of sin. But praise God, he has given us his word to anchor our entire lives to so that we do not have to rely on our emotions and feelings to lead us in what is true. I think it's really difficult for us to grasp how we're separated from ourselves, but let me give another example. We're all familiar with uh, self-image. Kind of the image that we, that we project as to who we are. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve had a great self-image. They knew who they were. They were the creature before the creator. They had no fear, no shame, no, no guilt, no insecurity. They had a purpose. They had perfect fellowship. Unfortunately, Romans chapter 12. Turn to Romans chapter 12 with me. Romans chapter 12, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God assigned. The moment Adam and Eve sought to be higher than God, their self-image was destroyed. They went from a perfect self-image to having a higher self-image of themselves than they should have. And when they sinned against God, their self-image tanked. Fear, worry, concern, 
death. This is the struggle that we all have internally every day, even as believers. So as a believer, maybe you have experienced guilty feelings from past sin that you continue to to harp on internally. You understand the gospel, you confess your sin to Christ, and you know that he's forgiven you, but you still allow those guilty feelings to convince you that you're unworthy to be used by him, or that you're unworthy to serve him in the church or serve him in your job because you're still clinging to past feelings of guilt from sin that the blood of Christ has already covered. That's an internal battle in your mind that you're dealing with. And the only way to recover that is to have a biblical understanding or a biblical self-image. When Christ becomes your Lord, when you place your faith and trust in him, the blood of Christ covers all of your sin and you are redeemed. No longer are you carrying around the old person or the old self-image. You have a new self-image because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Whether or not you live in that freedom or not. But recognizing that should begin to show you the separation that we all experience because of living in a fallen world. Church, every instance of cultural confusion is a direct result of the fall of Adam and Eve. And these four separations explain why we are all experiencing some degree of struggle in this fallen world. Those that are separated from God because of their sin are trying desperately to repair the four separations without acknowledging their creator. For example, how does the culture try to repair the separation between God and humanity? They're simply trying to remove God from reality. By removing God, they don't have to acknowledge their sin. By removing God, they don't have to deal with what is right and what is wrong. By removing God, they position themselves as God. How does the culture try to repair the separation experienced between humans? By striving to eliminate permanent relationships. No-fault divorce is commonplace. If a relationship is no longer giving you what you need, end it. Move on. Cohabitation allows for certain aspects of relational needs to be met but without the commitment. Sexual intimacy outside of marriage is completely permissible because it's only a physical act that has nothing to do with personhood. Sex is only satisfying animal instincts and therefore does not require an actual relationship with someone. All of these attempts to repair the separation only weakens the institution of the family, and this is Satan's goal. How does the culture try to repair the separation between humanity and nature? Well, government enacts legislation to protect endangered animals while simultaneously enacting legislation to kill unborn children to prevent overpopulation. There's an endless push to create more and more drugs to fight disease, reverse aging, prolong death. Scientists are constantly trying to alter genetic processes to enhance the production of crops, to eliminate perceived threats to food sources, and to develop genetically modified foods. There's a constant effort made to make work easier, to avoid work that's uh, demanding, to rely on technology to replace things that people should do. How does the culture try to repair the separation between humanity and self? They try to live according to a dualistic worldview that separates body from personhood. For many, the only aspect of humanity that matters is how a person views themselves internally and distinct from their body. 
The body is not the real or authentic self. The authentic self is what is perceived by the person in their mind. And so to betray the authentic self is the greatest harm that can be done to a person. We see the results of this devastating separation by individuals trying to fundamentally change their biological sex to match their perceived sexual identity in their mind. Illegal drugs and legal drugs are in high demand to alleviate the mental challenges people are experiencing. Suicide continues to rise as a means of people trying to end the mental confusion that they're experiencing. Rather than submitting to who the Creator says we are, everyone desires to be their own authority. This happens to us as well. Every time we choose to obey our sinful desires instead of Christ. Church, the list is endless of how fallen humanity tries to repair the four separations introduced by the fall of Adam and Eve. To further understand the cultural confusion of our day, I would encourage you to make your own list of how you see the culture trying to repair these four separations. In so doing, you'll have a greater understanding of why people are doing the things that they're doing. And as you make a list, share it with your pastors and other church members. But the truth is, church, there's only one solution. And God alluded to the solution in Genesis 3.15. God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Even though Adam and Eve blatantly disregarded their relationship with God by sinning against him, God in his mercy and his grace sought after them despite their feeble attempts to cover their shame and hide from him. God pursued them and he provided coverings for them. Church, remember that you were at that time separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The only solution, church, to the four separations is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ took our place on the cross and paid the penalty for our sin by shedding his own blood at the point of death. He suffered the full wrath of God on our behalf so that by faith in him alone we can receive forgiveness for our sin and be clothed in his righteousness. Only in Christ are we able to be restored to God by faith in his Son. Only in Christ are we able to be restored to those that have sinned against us and to seek the forgiveness of those we have sinned against. Only in Christ are we able to understand how God's creation points to his eternal power and divine nature. Only in Christ are we able to be restored internally by receiving a new heart and a new mind. Understanding these separations will better prepare us to live in this alien culture, what the Bible describes as the world. Church, what must we do then if Christ is the solution? We must strive to walk with Christ moment by moment in faith. We do this by saturating ourselves in the Word of God. Saturating ourselves has to be more than occasionally reading and more than a few times a week. I understand there are lots of demands in our time, but 
I also know the only way to see consistent heart transformation is by the renewing of our minds, which occurs by reading and obeying God's Word. We do this by prioritizing daily prayer. Prayer is our opportunity for us to confess our desperate need for Christ and to ask Him to provide us with wisdom, courage, and the desire to be obedient. We do this by prioritizing corporate and family worship of Christ. If Christ is your Lord and Savior, there is no greater privilege in gathering with other brothers and sisters to worship the King that has redeemed us. We do this by prioritizing the local body of Christ. Submitting to a local church is one of, the God's, one of God's primary means of sanctifying us in Christ. It's where we hear the word proclaimed. It's where we're held accountable to obeying Christ. Church, the only solution to the four separations is by submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. While we will not experience complete restoration of the four separations until Christ returns, we can experience significant healing right now when we submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Let's pray, church. Father, thank you for pursuing us despite being separated from you because of our sin. Thank you for opening our eyes to our sin and for revealing to us our desperate need for a Savior. Father, thank you for sending your Son to live a perfect life and to be the substitutionary, atoning sacrifice on the cross that paid the penalty for our sin. Thank you for giving us the faith to trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Thank you for covering us in the righteousness of Christ so that we are no longer guilty in your eyes but are now washed clean by the, by the blood of Christ. Thank you, Father, that all who call upon your name will be saved. We love you, Jesus. Amen.